0: God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And the Lord will bless his truth. To our hearts, for Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen. The world in which we live is a beautiful place. If you hadn't been at worship right now, you could be watching David Attenborough's Seven Worlds, One Planet, um, which is on the television at the moment. You can always see it later on iPlayer, But if you doubt it for a moment that this world is an incredibly beautiful place, then you need to watch something like that uh, when you see it in all its glory and beauty and vastness. But that beautiful world is also a dangerous place. A woman left her home in Rousley in England a couple of days ago while a month's rain fell on her town in a day and she was swept away to her death in the River Derwent. This world is a dangerous place. Extreme weather, incurable disease, human conflict. These are only some of the things that bring threats into our lives and that put us in danger. And today we remember that in a dangerous world, the Lord has been with us. It's estimated that in World War II between 70 and 85 million people died as a direct result of warfare or from war-related disease and famine. And of those between 70 and 85 million, between 50 and 55 million of those deaths were civilians for whom there is no memorial, whose names are not remembered. People who died in the Blitz in Belfast, people who died in camps, people who died as a result of being dislocated from their homes all across Europe during that war, people who died from all sorts of reasons who were just ordinary individuals. They never lifted a weapon. They were not involved in fighting, but they were part of the largest single group who perished during that time. The world is a dangerous place. And in Psalm 46, the sons of Korah address this issue. With confidence and with some unforgettable lines. Lines which have resonated over the centuries with people of faith who find themselves at the mercy of a dangerous world. God is our refuge and strength, an ever present help in trouble. That's how he begins the song. And he goes on to affirm this conviction in the context of both natural disaster on the one hand and national emergency on the other. Because on the one hand, he talks about the disintegration of all that is solid around us. He says, the Lord is our refuge and strength, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. He is describing here the end of all things as we know them. The very fabric of the earth is falling apart And we have lived in our lifetime with fears of that very reality. When I was younger and was growing up in the late 50s and the early 60s, the fear was the nuclear winter that would result from a nuclear holocaust. It was the time of the Cold War. It was time of tension between um, East and West. And the danger of what would happen if these fearsome arsenals of nuclear weapons were released into the world. Not only would huge numbers of people die and great destruction come, but it would usher in a nuclear winter which very few people would survive. Now, that particular fear has probably been replaced by another one. Now, the current fear is the fear that comes from climate emergency. I've been reading David Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth. It's probably not the best kind of bedtime reading, uh, basically. But in that book, he he summarizes a lot of the scientific investigation, research that has been done uh, in the past generations uh, to talk about the consequences for the world in which we live uh, of the current climate emergency. And in the book, he points out over and over and over again that only a two or three degree Rise in temperatures, average temperatures across the planet doesn't seem like very much two or three degrees. You're sitting in a freezing cold church tonight. You're looking for two or three degrees. You'd accept five or six actually if it was on offer. But a small rise in temperature, average temperature of two to three degrees would render large areas of our world uninhabitable and change everyone's lives permanently. We are faced with fears that result from natural disaster. But the sons of Korah are also aware that that's not the only massive problem that potentially we face. There is also the issue of human conflict. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. And in the psalm, these human wars come right to the gates of the holy city. They come right to the community of the Lord's own people, reminding us of the fact that though we are Christians and believers, though we trust in the Lord, we have no exemption certificate from the difficult issues of life. They come to our door too. The enemy is ranged outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. We have no exemption from the troubles and trials that face the whole of humanity. But, says the psalmist, God is within her, in the holy city. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. What is he saying? In the words of Derek Kidner, probably my favorite commentator on the Psalms. Kidner says this, he summarizes what the sons of Korah have to say in these words, our true security is in God, not in God plus anything else. Our true security is in God, not in God plus anything else against natural disaster and human conflict and any other issue that threatens the life and the health of human society in this world, there is only one true place that is a refuge and strength, and that is God and God alone. That's the case that the psalmist is making. Now, if that is true, then two things fall from it that I'd love you to think about just now. The first thing according to the psalmist is that if it is true that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, God and God alone, then for, for the first thing, we are no longer afraid. We are no longer afraid. Look who it is who is with us. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's the refrain that is repeated in the psalm. He is the one who is here. Eugene Peterson captures this in the message in his translation of those words like this. Jacob wrestling God fights for us. God of angel armies protects us. Look who is with us. Now, When you do look who is with us, that is not necessarily encouraging at first sight. Because this God who is with us, this Jacob wrestling God, this God of angel armies, is the God whose presence can not only save us, it can also unmake us. The psalmist says he lifts his voice, the earth melts His voice speaks into being everything that we see. And that same voice can dissolve it all, can melt it all away. We were made of dust and breath. And the withdrawal of breath or the collapse of dust is the end of our existence. It seems incredible to think that all that we see that seems so solid, you know, could ever just simply dissolve and melt away. Like as if the psalmist is maybe this is kind of hyperbole here. You know, it doesn't really actually mean that God could speak and all this would simply disappear. I mean, there's far too much stuff here, isn't there? I don't know if you've watched the television series, Chernobyl. It's not exactly a encouraging watch but it is a fascinating program about the disaster that took place in the Ukraine in the Chernobyl nuclear power station and, and, and all that was the consequence of that for, for that area for the people who lived worked there uh, and, and even for the world and if you've seen the, the, the television series or if you know anything about the incident you'll know that there were quite a large number of people Um, who sacrificed their lives to prevent the Chernobyl disaster being an even bigger disaster than it actually was. Firemen, um, people who worked at the plant, um, others, soldiers and miners and others who were drafted in to fulfill particular tasks to try and prevent the, the radiation spreading across the rest of Europe. Many of them gave their lives. They died horrendous deaths they received massive doses of radiation. Some of them were exposed to that radiation only for a matter of minutes. And yet so high was the dosage that they got that, that medical help w- w- was impossible. Normally in hospital, if you came in and you were ill, as they were seriously ill and, and severe pain of various kinds, the doctor would put a, a line into your arm and they would feed you drugs that would help to ease the pain and, and, and help to, to, to calm your suffering. They couldn't do it for these victims of intense radiation poisoning because what actually happened, this is pretty gruesome to talk about, but it is the fact, what actually happened is that the cellular structures of their body disintegrated. They basically fell apart. There was no way to help them, no way to comfort them, no way to relieve their pain because their bodies disintegrated. No matter how solid the world seems, no matter how solid we seem, if radiation can do that to us, what cannot the voice of the one who created the whole world in the first place? He speaks and the earth melts. So is it necessarily that encouraging that a God like that is here? The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. Well, The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, according to the psalmist, is also the God of Jacob. Why would he choose to call himself that? Jacob was a cheat and a liar and a coward. He was the one with whom God wrestled and the one with whom God is content to have his name associated Because not only is he the earth-melting Lord, he is the God of grace and mercy. He is the God who can change a life like Jacob's life and can make that life part of his purposes in this world. That's the God who is here. The God of limitless power who comes not only in power, but also in grace. And that... The presence of that God among us results in something beautiful. One of the most beautiful lines of the psalm, I always think. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Where God is, we find the resources that we need. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Inside the besieged city with the enemy at the gates, those who are within are not afraid because there is a river to supply their needs. At the very beginning of the psalm, the sons of Korah said that God was an ever-present help. That word help carries the idea that the help is enough. It is the same basic idea which describes the woman the Lord God makes for the man in Genesis chapter 2. She is described as a helper suitable for him. And the basic idea behind that word is that the help is enough. It is all that was necessary. All that was necessary for Adam's need was met in the woman that the Lord God makes and brings to him. She is his helper. She is enough for him. God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. He in Himself is enough and He is here. When all that seemed fixed is shifting, when the enemy is raging at the gates, He is here and He is enough and there is no need to be afraid. Remember Peter and Jesus in the storm. And Jesus walks out to the disciples struggling in the boat to keep the boat afloat to try to get it to go in the direction they were, they were trying to get to for safety. And Jesus comes walking across the water to them. Peter sees him. And in that moment, you know, in the romance of faith, he says to him, Lord, if it's you, bid me come out of the boat and come to you on the water. And Jesus said, okay, get out of the boat and come. And Peter gets out of the boat. We read then, Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. So Peter gets out of the boat. Okay, here's what Jesus has said. He starts to walk towards Jesus. The text tends to indicate that he made some headway. He, he was away from the, the boat. He was on the water. He was nearly at Jesus when all of a sudden his rational mind kicked in. And he started saying, okay, I shouldn't be here. You know, the laws of physics, which obviously Peter was well acquainted with, tell me that it's not possible for a human being to walk on water. I can't possibly be here. And, and as soon as these thoughts begin to occur to him, down he goes into the water, and Jesus has to reach down and snatch him with his hand and saves his life. And then we read that this, in the story, that this is what happens to Peter. He sinks, but why was he afraid? Why was he afraid? He was standing maybe just a few feet from the person who made everything that there is, who himself was standing with his feet on the waves of the Sea of Galilee. Why was he afraid? Was was Jesus there in that moment not enough for Peter's need? Was there not enough resource there so that he could complete this journey across to Jesus? Why was he afraid? Why are you afraid? Jacob wrestling God fights for us. God of angel armies protects us. Jesus is enough. He is all that we need. In him are all the resources that we require. He is here. Why are we afraid? What could possibly happen in life that is bigger, stronger, more powerful than him? When we understand that God is who God is, we are no longer afraid. But then, secondly, we are no longer frantic. If our experience of the presence and power of God does away with our fear, then what is it we have? What is the opposite of fear? Well, the opposite of fear is not boldness, okay? The opposite of fear is not to become cocky, you know. Oh, well, sure. Why wouldn't I be okay? Okay. I'm me after all, you know? What have I got to worry about? God's on my side, I'll be fine. So we replace fear with boldness, you know? Cockiness. Apart from that making us insufferable, boldness is not the opposite of fear. The opposite of fear is trust. When Jesus pulled Peter out of the water, this is what he said, you of little faith, Why did you doubt? In the storms and hostilities of life, it is our trust in God which is the casualty of our fears. When we are afraid, then we cease to trust. We do not depend on the resources that are available to us. And and what we do instead is in our anxiety, we get busy. We set about to resolve our own difficulties. And as the problems mount and rise up, what do we do? We just work harder. We do more because we are afraid. And because that fear... Dissolves our trust and faith in God. We work harder and harder and harder. Sometimes we don't realize what we're doing. People will say to me sometimes, John, you don't delegate enough. You're running all the hours of the day. You're doing far too much. And you know what your problem is? Your problem is you can't delegate anything to anybody else. That's what's wrong with you. And you need to learn to do that. And and they lecture me. And loads of people have done that. All to no avail over the years, I have to confess. But anyway, that's what they say. It could be, of course, they're putting their finger on exactly the wrong thing. It could be that it isn't the inability to delegate that is the problem. The problem is, that I don't trust the Lord enough. That it's the faith issue that is at the root of this relentless activity that you and I constantly get ourselves involved in. And the problem is, not that we can't hand things over to other people, but that we don't trust the Lord enough. And so into this reality of lives that are bounded by fear and that therefore are investing in relentless activity in an attempt to deal with the issues that are around them into this set of circumstances, the sons of Korah say that the Lord says, be still, be still and know that I am God. Jesus speaks into our lives and into our relentless activities in an attempt almost to save ourselves. And he says, stop. Be still. He treats us like once he treated a heaving storm swell on the Sea of Galilee, asleep in a fisherman's boat in a terrifying storm. He is wakened by the absolutely terrified disciples And we read in Mark 4, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. That's the same command that we receive here in the 46th Psalm. The way that Jesus spoke to wind and waves on Sea of Galilee, the Lord speaks to us. He says, be still. See, the thing is, we need to step back ourselves so that the one who is exalted in our lives is not us for our hard work and our endless endeavors and our relentless activity, but the power of God that people can see at work in us when we learn to be still. Remember the congregation helped me out a couple of weeks ago with something that I needed done and it required some materials to do the job. And when we'd finished the job, I said to him, look, what do I owe you for the materials? He said, you don't owe me anything at all. I said, no, no, I do. Look, I want want to pay you for the materials that you bought. How much do I owe you? He said, you don't owe me anything. He said, don't I owe you my life? I knew what he meant by that. He was somebody who came to faith in the context of our congregation a number of years ago after a long struggle with unbelief. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. I happened to be the person who in the mercy of God had the privilege of being there when it happened. I said to him, you don't owe me your life. You do owe somebody your life, but it's not me. It's not me. It's God. You see the problem that, that sometimes when we are the ones who are out front there, people misunderstand, they don't get a chance to see that the person really at work here isn't me or you, it is the power of God in us. Jesus says, be still, would you for goodness sake, stop for a moment so I can create a bit of space for everybody to see that I'm here. Here's how the message puts this first Step out of the traffic. Take a long, loving look at me, your high God, above politics, above everything else. Step out of the traffic. Now, this is not a recipe for total inactivity. God is not saying, go home, get into your armchair, put your slippers on, and just lounge there for the rest of your days. That is not what the psalmist is saying, okay? Okay? But there is no doubt that at certain points in our lives and in particular sets of circumstances, we need to hear this command. We need to hear God saying to us, I need you to stop so I can do the work I have to do. For one thing, we sometimes need to hear the command because if we keep on going the way we're going, we end up doing things for God that God never wanted us to do. In the city of Jerusalem with the enemy at the gates, what is the temptation for the citizens of Jerusalem to do? The temptation for the citizens of Jerusalem is to band together, to get the army up and at it, and to fight the people at the gates. But in this psalm, what we come to understand is that the God who is among us, the God who is here, is a God who does what? He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He shatters the bow and he breaks the spear. And all of a sudden, by our relentless activity, well, let's get ourselves organized and fight these people and put them away, we end up doing the very thing that God is not doing in this generation. God is not exalting himself through human conflict. He is not on this side or that side. God exalts himself on a cross in the sacrifice of his son. And sometimes when we rush ahead into our relentless activity, we end up doing things that God never asked us to do But for another thing, our relentless activity at times detracts from the glory of the Lord. Because he needs to create space for everyone to play their part, not just me, not just you. I heard Andy Stanley tell a lovely story about what happened when he was planting the megachurch, which he ended up being the pastor of in the United States. And at the beginning, they didn't have any buildings of their own. They were meeting, I think it was in a school. And so early every Sunday morning, a a massive truck would come into the school playground. All the kit would be in it, the seats, the sound gear, everything else. All had to be unloaded. All had to be set up. Two or three services of worship had to take place. And then everything had to be stripped down and packed back into the container and driven away until the following Sunday. And this was tough in the early days. They didn't have a huge amount of people. It was a small plant at the beginning and everybody was maxed out with all this work that had to be done every weekend. And so one Sunday after the services were over and people were clearing up, Andy was down in the middle of the hall with a brush brushing the floor and trying to clear up afterwards because they had to leave the school the way they found it for the sake of the classes the next day. And Andy Stanley wanted not to appear to be one of those people, you know, who was below his dignity. They actually roll his sleeves up and do some real work. So here he was providing an example to the rest of his flock, brushing the floor, helping to tidy up after the Sunday was over. And one of the members of the, the practical team came over to him and said, Andy, give me the brush and I'll brush the floor. And Andy said, No, 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 it's fine. Look, I'm really happy to do this. This is how I'm trying to serve here. I'll brush the floor. He said, Andy, give me the brush. And Andy said, No, I'm not giving you the brush. I'm brushing the floor. Look, Andy, he said, This. He said, What I tell you? He said, there's people standing outside there who were at the service. They need somebody to go and speak to them. God knows we don't have a lot of people at the moment. Andy, that's your job. Would you go and speak to them? Give me the brush so I get to do what God called me to do. So our relentless activity not only sometimes ends us up doing things the Lord never asked us to do in the first place, but it also ends up preventing other people in whose lives the Lord is also at work from getting to do the things he called them to do. God is saying to us through the psalm, would you ever just let me be who I am? And if I am who I am, then, he said, you won't be afraid. I am enough for you. Whatever the circumstance is, whatever the issue that you face is, I can't give you an exemption from the disasters and challenges of life, but I can be enough for you in all those things. Let me be who I am to you. And that being the case, Not only do you not need to be afraid, but you no longer need to be frantic. I didn't ask you to solve all the problems of the world. I asked you to trust in me. God of Jacob is with us. Maybe we need to hear that tonight. Some people need to hear this tonight because you're afraid. There are situations in your life that you're struggling to face. In fact, sitting here right now, you know you can't face it and you have no idea what to do and you're scared stiff. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present health and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even if the earth dissolves and everything that is a fixed point in our life is taken away from us, we will not fear. Why? Because He is with us and he is enough. You're afraid. Maybe there are other people here tonight and your problem is your frantic, relentless activity. (coughs) Trying to solve all these problems and sort out all these issues. And the more they come, the harder you work. You may be doing things God never asked you to do. You're blocking the opportunity for service for other people. And Jesus says to you, would you ever just be still? And maybe somebody needs to hear that tonight. You need to hear about a gracious God who's more than enough. He is all that you need. And and he is able to make of your life something special. But his command to you right now is, I need you to stop. Stop. And create some space for me to work.